0: privilege to be with you this morning uh, to have heard the word read to us and just appreciated very much how uh, elder rex reoriented us to our heavenly citizenship and that what we have to hang on to in turbulent times and i'd like to invite you to come with me now to a portion of scripture that shows us precisely uh, what it is we have to maintain a grip on the gospel of the lord jesus christ if you'd turn with me to philippians chapter 3 Actually, the passage that was right before our previous Scripture reading, Philippians chapter 3, and this morning I'd like to read to you uh, from verses 7 to 11, and then it will form the text for our sermon. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Please listen, this is the Word of God. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Would you join me in a brief word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we pray that you would, uh, by your Holy Spirit, whom you have sent through your Son, Jesus, we pray that you would not only open this text to us, but you'd open our hearts to the text. We pray that as we sit in these pews this morning, in this uh, season of life, that by the power of the Spirit, we would hear Christ, as it were, from His pulpit in heaven, our prophet, priest, and king, speak to us. Lord, would you please show us the glories of the gospel? Would you move our hearts to embrace Him with greater faith and affection Would you move us, we pray, to turn from all else that we cherish above Christ? And then would you give us that desire and the ability to press on, as we heard read earlier, for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? And so now, Lord, we pray that you would please uh, work through uh, these words and that you would speak to each heart and mind that is in these pews and worshiping with us online, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Throughout my Christian life and ministry, uh, biographies of other Christians and Christian leaders have had a profound effect on my life and on my ministry. Many of the models that have been used most in my life have actually been written down, examples that have been written down in biographies and autobiographies. And recently, my wife Rhonda and I have Uh, revisited the story of Jim and Elizabeth Elliot, those missionaries amongst the five families who went to Ecuador in the mid-50s, and the five men gave their lives on a beach there, on the river, to bring the gospel to the Aka Indians. If you know the story, you know that Jim Elliot, with his passionate leadership style, gave us a number of memorable maxims that inspire the Christian in Christ's cause and the Christ gospel. One maybe the most famous of Eliot's maxims is this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. One of his lesser known maxims that orients our hearts to what really matters is this, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. Actually, that maxim was used to lead a man to Christ some years after Eliot's own death. The 19th century also gave us perhaps some of the greatest missionaries in the missionary movement since the apostles and some of the most inspiring and gripping stories of missionary lives. For example, John Patton, he was a Scotsman who gave his life to be a missionary on the islands which were then called the New Hebrides, and those islands were inhabited by cannibals, And concerned Christians back in Scotland tried to convince Patton that he really shouldn't put his life on the line to bring the gospel to people such as these. Here's how Patton relates one encounter. Amongst many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian gentleman whose argument was always the cannibals. You will be eaten by cannibals. At last I replied, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave. They're to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die in serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it makes no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or eaten by worms. Gospel-gripped biographies like Patton's and like the Elliot's can instruct us and inspire our lives to hang on to what needs to be hung on to and to orient our lives and prioritize our lives the way they're supposed to be in this world. In Philippians chapter 3 gives us the spirit-inspired autobiography of Christ's official spokesman, the Apostle Paul. And better than any story outside of the Bible, a careful read of this chapter can reorient us to a gospel-gripped life. Because Paul here is using his spiritual autobiography to remind a church that he's planted and that he loves of the gospel message they've got to hang on to as they are pressured by the world around them and as that pressure by the world around them is actually creating tensions within the church in which they worship, fellowship, and do ministry. I want you to notice, as we read the text, Paul's protective pastoral purpose. If your Bible's open, notice verse 1. He says, I write these things to you, to remind you. To write these things to you is safe for you. Verse 2, look out, look out, look out. He's like a grandfather who sees the, the ferocious dog on the other side of the street. He's saying, look out, look out, look out, three times. Then verse 16, if we'd read that far, you'd notice that he closes off the section with this little uh, end, of the per, end, end of the section Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So this, the spirit-inspired purpose of rehearsing his own spiritual experience is not to make much of himself. It's not to get himself on the publisher's list. It's to protect the church. It's to promote their joy in the gospel by strengthening their grip on the gospel in the world. So you might put it this way, the spiritual autobiography serves to remind us of the message that we must personally believe, that we must proclaim, and that we must protect. So if I could put it in one life-transforming takeaway for you, if you, if you don't hear anything else after this, take this away with you. We promote and protect our joy in the Lord by maintaining our grip on the gospel. If you're looking at the world around you right now and all of the news feeds you're getting and everything that's swirling and all of the trials and all of the confusion and feeling perhaps like society itself is coming apart, the way that you promote and protect your joy in the Lord is to get your grip on the gospel. And that's what Paul gives to us in this passage. Well, I think we'll be equipped to do that by, if you would notice with me, three glorious realities of the apostolic gospel that are given to us in this spiritual autobiography. Here's the first. Christ is of such incomparable worth that we renounce all our own achievements and assets for Him. That's the first gospel reality in the passage. We have to see that Christ is of such incomparable worth that we renounce all our own achievements and assets to get a grip on him. In the Gospels, Jesus told stories to illustrate the value of who he is and what he did. And he said that discovering his kingdom, his redemptive righteous rule in your life, discovering his kingdom was like a man who discovered a treasure hidden in a field and when he saw it he covered it up immediately and he went out and he sold everything else he had so that he could have the right to the treasure. Jesus followed that story with the pearl of great price. A merchant who dealt in fine pearls discovered one such great pearl of such value that he went out and sold everything else that he could get the pearl. Now if you've been engaged in business you might get the picture. You discover a property, you discover a product, an investment that your calculations tell you is of greater value than what you already possess. And so you calculate that it's of greater value to offload your existing assets of lesser value in order to purchase the property or the product of greater value. Well, what Paul is telling you here is that he, when it comes to being right with God, he's discovered the pearl of great price. And he's done the spiritual calculations. He's looked at the books. And everything that he once thought that he brought to the table in being right with God is not only of lesser value, it's actually trash. If your Bible's open, I'd like you to notice verses 7 to 8, how his spiritual calculus actually escalates in intensity. Just look at verses 7 to 8 for a second. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count presently everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Did you hear it? Because he's seen Christ, he assesses Whatever identities, whatever activities he's previously thought he added to the religious equation as a loss, and that word means not just of lesser value, it means actually damage. In terms of the spiritual books, everything he thought was good was loss, and he's actually referring to the list up in verses 4 to 6. What his religious achievements were, he thought. He had the right pedigree. He came from the right people. He had the right performance under the law, under their religious code. And he previously evaluated all of that as a gain that he brought to the table in relationship with God. But then he's seen Christ. And since he's seen Christ, he's done the math, and he now considers all of what he thought was an asset to be a loss. But he goes further. Everything is a loss. He makes it universal. He suffered the loss of all things, he says. And then he chooses this really graphic word that goes well below loss, rubbish. In the original context, that meant either the scraps of refuse that you threw out the back door to the dog or it could actually mean excrement. What he's picturing is offensive, foul waste. So, increasingly, continually, he values all of his own religious performance, all of the markers of his own identity, all of his own accomplishments, all of his own assets, everything he thinks he brings to the table, all things as basically fill. A number of years ago, one of my younger relatives uh, pulled up at my front door in what they thought was a shiny new red sports car. It was sleek. It was red it had seats that tilted back and he pulled up and he came to the door and he said hey let's go for a ride in my new car you're not going to believe what I paid for this thing so we got in the car and he let me get in the driver's seat and let me drive it we got around the corner and I could feel the wheel doing this and I could hear this noise and he thought this is a pretty cool car and I could hear a noise going and I said buddy how much did you pay for this car a few months later the car was gone because it was what we call a lemon See, what he thought was of great value was actually basically trash. See, this was the gospel reality for Paul. Not just that he discovered that all he thought was flashy assets before God were actually filth. He didn't just discover it. He took a hard look at it and he considered it all to be rubbish. What he thought were his shiny assets he brought to the table. But it's essential to notice this. Paul's not doing this because he's got a poor self-image. He's not doing it because he's got a dour disposition where he equates misery with religion. It's because he's seen something. Actually, he's seen someone who is of incalculably, incomparably more excellent worth. Chapter 2, he reminded them that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God, equal in glory with God as God. And as the eternal Son, he willingly came down, took on a human nature as the servant who perfectly obeyed the will of God for our salvation. But now, he has been raised by God, exalted in glory as the Lord over all. And so what he's telling us here is he's seen that Christ... He's seen the crucified, exalted, glorified Christ, and in comparison to him, everything's rubbish. Everything's trash. Here's what this means. Those who would gain Christ must renounce their reliance on everything else for right relationship with God. It means that relationship with Christ is worth more than everything else you thought your life, your identity, and your relationship with God was built on. And that for the sake of Christ, we count everything else we've trusted in, everything else we've propped our lives up with as a loss. Put another way, the gospel that we must maintain our grip on contains the doctrine of repentance. In Acts chapter 20, Paul actually summarized his gospel message this way, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus. Glorying in Christ, gaining Christ, means that you turn from everything else you have trusted in, everything else you have worshipped, because he is worth immeasurably more than all of that. Please hear me. This means you can't say you want Jesus and your previous religion. You can't say you want Jesus and your previous superstitions. You can't say you want this Jesus and your previous idol's identity and practices in sin. See, in order to sense the worth of Christ, we must feel the weight of our sin and the worthlessness of our own attempts and assets at righteousness. That's the first gospel reality in this spiritual autobiography. The second is this. Christ is of such incomparable worth that we rely solely on him for our righteousness from God. Christ is of such incomparable worth that we rely solely on him for our righteousness from God. The final judgment gave a great sense of urgency to the apostles' ministry. Jesus Christ now sits at the right hand of God and he will return again and all people will stand before his throne to be judged by God on that day. Forty years ago, this past December, the Lord used the reality of that to draw me to himself. I was a teenager. To that point, I'd been brought up in a home that did not have the gospel And in the middle of a Canadian winter, I was sitting in the back of a community hall listening to a missionary from Israel talk about the return of Jesus. And at that point, the Holy Spirit convicted me that everything he was saying about Jesus was true. Jesus was coming again, and if he came when I was in my sinful state and I was found to be in the state I was in, he would judge me guilty, and I would go to hell for eternity. I can tell you where I was sitting. I pretty much can tell you what I was wearing. It was that vivid. Here's a missionary from Israel pointing Gentiles, he's evangelized to the final reality of the judgment, and he's reminding them you can stand in that judgment dressed in one of two kinds of righteousness. You can stand in the judgment dressed in your own self made righteousness. Or you can stand there dressed in the righteousness that comes from God. The foundational professor of theology at the seminary where I teach was Professor John Murray, and he said he made this comment. Listen to it carefully. The greatest enemy of the gospel is not human unrighteousness. It's human righteousness. Here's what that means. There's a righteousness that we spend for ourselves. There's a righteousness that is... And there's a righteousness that's given by God. And human beings instinctively, perpetually invent their own standards of righteousness and expect God's going to accept them based on that. And religious people do it and secular people do it. Secular people form their own code of righteousness out of being on the right side of the right cause by obeying the law or morality created and dogmatized by the culture. The creeds placarded on the, the lawns of neighborhoods tell you the standards of righteousness that we've created for ourselves, that we judge ourselves by and judge everybody else by. Religious people form their sense of righteousness based on their scrupulous observance of man-made superstitions and spiritual traditions. What I wear, where I go, where I don't go. and some nations, tribes and people depend on their routines at keeping prayer, fasts and festivals, paying off dead ancestors, sacrificing to the elements of the earth doesn't matter if you're secular, religious, or pagan. Human beings create their own standards of righteousness by which they live, live to appease their own conscience. And the reason we do it is we're made in the image of God, and we know that a righteous God exists, and he stamped his image on our heart but we suppress what he has revealed to us about himself, and so we create our own laws of righteousness, which is why Murray says the greatest enemy of the gospel is not human unrighteousness, but human man-made righteousness. What Paul's telling us in this passage is he doesn't want to stand in front of God on the day of judgment dressed in his own filthy homespun suit of righteousness. He wants to be dressed in the king's own robes. He had renounced everything else so that on that day, notice what he says, I'll be found in him, Christ, the righteousness that comes from God. Early in my Christian life, somebody gave me a parable about an ancient tribal chief who was known for two qualities, justice and mercy. Mercy. And in that tribe over which he governed, there was a law that theft was punishable by flogging. They discovered that they had a thief amongst them, and so they set a trap to catch the thief. And they came to the judge on a given day, and they said, We've caught the thief. It's now time for you to render judgment. So he went to his seat, and the crowd of the tribe gathered, and they brought around through the crowd as the crowd parted the thief that they had captured, and he looked into the eyes of his aged mother. She was the thief. And the crowd began to murmur, and they said, well, now what's he going to do? Because if he's just, he can't have her flogged. She'll die. So his his mercy has got to prevail. And then the other side said, yeah, but then he's not just. And so as the judge made his assessment, he stood up and he said, take her to the flogging post. They said, well, he's just. Yeah, but he's not merciful. And as she got to the flogging post, and they bared her back to the whip, the judge stood up and he said, "Stop." And he said, "Oh, his mercy has prevailed." Yeah, but he's not just. And the judge bared his own back and wrapped his arms around his mother and looked at the flog the man with the whip and he said, "Proceed." 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, sums up the breathtaking gospel exchange, exchange this way: For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's how the justice and mercy of God is revealed in the in the righteousness of God. Christ Himself Is made to be sin, was made to be sin for us. Our unrighteousness imputed to him and punished on the cross, so that his righteousness would be imputed to us when we believe in him. He is the righteous one. And in his obedience he went all the way to the cross obeying God's command to give himself up so that in the great exchange we would be legally counted as righteous in the righteousness of Christ. So that in Christ all those who believe are now legally and irrevocably counted righteous by God for all eternity. That's the breathtaking gospel exchange. The legal imputation of our unrighteousness to Christ and his righteousness to us, and that doesn't happen by our law-keeping. Far, far less our keeping of man's laws. The glorious gospel reality on which we must maintain our grip in this world is that God, the holy, righteous judge of all people, acquits sinners of their guilt and accepts us as righteous Solely for the righteousness of his son imputed to us by faith. My friends, that's called the doctrine of justification. And that's what Paul's saying in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. But if this spiritual autobiography shows us anything, it's that the gospel message is not only to be held, it's not only to be defended, it's a spiritual autobiography. It tells us it's got to be personalized. It must be personally received. It must be personally rested in in relationship to Jesus. And so I have to ask you today, how are you dressed for the final day? Could it be possible that there might yet be some here today, even in this well-taught, gospel-preached, congregation or online, you've heard it over and over again, but to some degree you still depend on your own efforts, your own religious observance, or your own social efforts, and haven't renounced all of your own merits and markers of righteousness and turned only to Jesus for your righteousness before God. You see, the glory of the gospel is not only that we just know about Jesus, it's not even that we defend the gospel of Jesus or even that we make the gospel of Jesus known, but that we know Him personally, experientially, in spirit-united relationships. I have to ask you, where are you today? Finally, I'd ask you to strengthen your grip on the gospel by noticing one third and final gospel reality tucked away in this apostolic autobiography. And it's this, the good news, that Christ dwells in the heart of those who are his so they can earnestly pursue Christ-likeness in their life. Here's the third gospel reality. Christ is of such incomparable worth that we rely on the power of his resurrection to become increasingly like him. Sometimes, when people hear the good news that acquittal and acceptance before God is not based on their law-keeping, their reflex is this. Therefore, God's commands have no relevance and no rule over my new life in Christ. Because I'm now righteous in Christ, I don't need to be concerned to live righteously. Sometimes that's the way people react. Well, seasoned pastor that he was, Paul anticipated that distortion of the gospel message. In Romans 6, he wrote this, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And here's the emphatic answer from the Spirit-inspired apostle, By no means. And then in Romans 6, he goes on to say, Because we're in Christ, we've died to sin, and in our inner man, we've now been raised in Christ to walk in newness of life, and being united to the Christ who justifies us by his righteousness means that in his death and resurrection, we can offer ourselves to him for new righteous living. He makes that point doctrinally in Romans 6. He makes the point biographically here in Philippians chapter 3. Assured that he's been justified by Christ. And will be found in Christ. What does he say? That famous verse, chapter 3, verse 10. Assured that he's justified. Assured that he'll be found in Christ. Then he says this, I want to know him. I want to know him personally, increasingly, experientially, relationally. I want to know Jesus. And knowing Jesus has got boots on the ground consequences. It leads to, look at what he says in verse in verse 10, it looks to knowing the power of His resurrection, what leads to sharing in His suffering, and, and then third, becoming like Him in His death. Now, don't miss the logic of that passage, the order that He puts things in. We expect Him to start with suffering, death, and resurrection, but He goes, power of His resurrection, knowing His suffering and death. He's going to get to the re- the final resurrection in verse 11, but verse 10, He's talking about the power of the resurrection In him that works itself out in the consequence of becoming like Jesus in Christ like pattern in this life. See, his first thought, his final hope at the end of life is the resurrection from the dead. His first thought and confidence for Christian living is the resurrection life of Christ in him by the power of the Spirit. I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection that I might become more like him. And so I press on for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus until that day of resurrection. That's what he means when he says he wants to know Christ. Progressive, though not yet perfected, conformity to the character of Christ according to the commands of God. Holiness, or the fruit of righteousness. See, you have to understand, it's not that Paul's trying to earn his way up to the resurrection of the dead by his works. He's not suddenly become confused between verses 10 to 12 on the ground of his eternal acceptance with God. He knows, and you notice what he says, Christ has made him his own, and it's because he knows Christ has made him his own that now he wants to press on and he wants to press up to further conformity, full and final conformity to Christ. The good news. Of Christ in you the hope of glory means that we have real hope and real power for progress in Christ's likeness until the day when we will be fully finally free from sin let me tell you the difference this makes in your life a number of years ago uh, a a loving Christian father brought his son to me as the pastor. The son had been caught in a situation that is one of those sins that young men get themselves caught in, and he was just bound in this. As I began to work with him as his pastor, we went to Romans chapter 6. And we tried to deal with this life-enslaving sin that he was involved in, and we began to look at Romans chapter 6, and we began to unfold and expound this glorious gospel reality that's not only Christ for you, it's Christ in you. You have died to sin. You've been made alive to righteousness in Christ. And we began to read that passage, and he looked up from the Bible, and he looked at me, and he said, you mean I don't have to live like this the rest of my life? You mean there's real hope that I can become a different man than I am today? He said, yeah, that's what the gospel is telling me." And I can tell you that that young man now years later is a very different man than he was on that day when his very loving Christian father brought him to his pastor. The good news of Christ in you, the hope of glory, means we have real hope, we have real power for the progress in holiness until that day when we stand before Jesus sin-free. Here's what it also means. It means that it's an affront to Christ to claim Christ and be content with unrighteousness in our life. We can't claim Christ and be content with our sin. The gospel we proclaim and must personally believe and protect includes our commitment to holiness. Because knowing Christ means knowing the power of His resurrection, working in us by His Spirit, working in us to will and do according to His good pleasure. Even when being conformed to Him means suffering like Him and for Him. So here's what Paul's spiritual autobiography tells us. We promote and protect our joy in the Lord In this world, by maintaining by faith our grip on the gospel. And that means we've got to personalize it. We've got to promote it. And as a church, we've got to protect it. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ whom you sent into this world not only to be the revelation of your righteousness, but to perfectly obey you so that he would be the righteousness for everyone who believes. And then, Lord, we praise you that you raised him from the dead so that now sitting at your right hand he has poured out the Holy Spirit who dwells in the heart of all those who are united to him that we might now be conformed to the righteousness of Christ increasingly, progressively, until that day of our bodily resurrection. So Lord, we would pray for anyone who has has listened to this message today who as yet has not turned to Christ from their sin to the Savior that you would give that saving grace. And Lord, for those of us who struggle and battle with sin in our life and the remaining embers of corruption, would you give the hope of the resurrected power of Christ? Would you cause us to turn from our sin in hope and trust Jesus? And would you work in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure as we work out our salvation. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.